From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. Yeah, hello and welcome into another edition of the Automotive ADHD Show. My name is Matt West. I am the resident gearhead, at least on this podcast, I am. And you know, this this has been the first full week of the new year, and it has been good. We've managed even more snow here uh, in Colorado, which I like. We've had an unusually dry winter, uh, and uh, I have spent (laughs) a good chunk of the week in my relatively... Uh, warm, well, uninsulated garage going through all the different little life, little items, kind of a laundry list of things on the uh, crusty A86, the $800 Jeep Stroker that threw a fuel line. So I had the um, the great pleasure of dropping a fuel tank in uh, sub freezing weather. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that was entertaining. That was fun. That was fun. And of course, the uh, $600 AMC Hornet that just runs because that's the most reliable thing Uh, I own. So anyway, aside from that, lots of great things. So many interesting things have happened over the past week. I have a loaded show. Uh, The car market is insane, even more so. We thought it was crazy. Well, well, you got to check this out. Now, there is a wrecked Corvette, a base model, selling more for more than a new one. Yeah, that's nutty. Also, Chevy, speaking of Chevys, um, introduced the Silverado EV, which um, that's probably the biggest or at least the most hyped piece of news, I would say, in the car industry in in quite a long while now. Uh, People have been wanting that as much as they've been wanting the F-150 EV. Uh, So, uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. And uh, there is also the... um, Incident in Virginia on uh, Interstate 95, where a bunch of motorists were snowed in, stuck for over 24 hours. And uh, I'm going to have a guest joining me in the last uh, section of the show to discuss how much uh, fuel cars burn while they're idling. Also talk about some winter preparedness for your car. That's all good stuff. Now, before I get into that. Did you hear about the $9 million license plate? $9 million. Holy cow. Uh, well, anyway, there's a man in Dubai who owns what uh, he says is the most expensive license plate ever. And uh, he was um, being interviewed on a, on a BBC Two series about rich, opulent people in Dubai. There are many of them. Uh, it's a man by the name of Abu Sabah. Sab- Sabah? Abu Sabah? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to try on that name. That was that was my effort trying. But he said uh, what sparked him into buying this license plate, which the, the license plate, by the way, isn't anything fancy. It's just a plate that has the number five. Nothing else. Just the number five. Five. That, that's it. Why is that nine million dollars? I don't know. But he said his reason for buying this was because he was turned away from a nice hotel, even though he was driving a near million dollar Rolls Royce. They said, uh, no, no, you uh, you can't come in here with your average license plate. They actually turned him away. What kind of place turns away business like that? I don't know. But they said, no, you have a million dollar Rolls Royce, but you are still a poor because you don't have a fancy license plate and apparently only cool rich people have nice license plates this is uh i I can't say i sympathize with uh his struggles here of getting into this hotel (laughs) it's not particularly the most relatable thing i think to most people but uh it's so mind-bogglingly strange that uh, I, I'm just going to play a clip of him explaining it himself um, and uh, take a listen to this they told me you need to have a nice number plate i said what is a nice number plate they said a two digit 
I said, wow, that's interesting. So I went and picked up a couple of number plates at that time. And then this was my best number, number five. Is the number plate worth more than the car? Of course. Car is only $800,000, but the number plate is $9 million. Of course. Of course, he says. Oh, of course it is. Uh, that is to be expected. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. So yeah. All right. I will say a lot of folks uh, commenting on this are quick to jump to conclusions. Oh my God. $9 million on a license plate. There's so many better things you could do for 9 million. Think of all the, the, the humanitarian things you could do and donations and stuff like that. Right. That's what a lot of people have been saying in response to this. Uh, I will say looking at the program that Dubai has for license plates. Uh, these weird rare ones that are auctioned off by the government uh, do have the proceeds go to charity. So in a roundabout way, this man is donating $9 million to a probably a variety of charities uh, through the form of a license plate. So there is some merit in that. If it was just the license plate and there was no charity, I would be uh, <laughs> I would probably be jumping on the bandwagon of people saying, oh, my God, there's so many better things you could do. There's so many more things you could buy, like nine Rolls Royces for that kind of money. Um, or you could buy the Bugatti Chiron and there are like five of them. I mean, come on for nine million dollars. There's there's a lot of stuff, but at least I will say there is the good that, you know, the proceeds from that do go to charity, but come on, it's still, it is a $9 million stamped piece of aluminum with the numeral five on it. So, I mean, it's not even anything funny or interesting. I mean, if I'm going to pay big money for a license plate, come on, it's got to be something stupid and funny. But, you know, this is still probably the reason I'm not allowed into these uh, nice hotels in Dubai. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure I would definitely be turned down with my fleet of um, sub thousand dollar cars, regardless of the license plate. So <laughs> anyway, uh, hey, on the topic of things that are uh, overpriced, uh, there is a C8 Corvette that came up for auction uh, with a starting price of seventy six thousand uh, dollars. And this is a one LT, which is basically the base trim. And that's only only I say fifteen thousand dollars higher than the MSRP with over about a thousand miles on it. OK, they're hard to come by. Maybe that's a fair deal. No, <laughs> it's not. Because the problem is this car has been wrecked. It has front and rear end damage, has been in a wreck. Looks like it spun out and tapped a wall and then spun the other way and tapped the back of the car into a wall. And uh, the new driver uh, or the driver of that probably got a little exuberant with their new car. They they've been driving it for a thousand miles, got a little more comfortable, maybe too comfortable in it. Um, and uh, and somehow this wrecked example of a new Corvette is selling for more than a new one. And again, there's nothing special about this car. And the reason this is the case is because new ones aren't actually selling for MSRP, which is ridiculous. So new examples of the one LT C8 Corvette. Again, that's the kind of cool mid engine one. And, um, uh, MSRP is $61,000 according to Chevrolet. Well, you can't get one for less than a hundred thousand because of dealer markups and all this nonsensical stuff, because the car market is bonkers right now and it's not just affecting uh corvettes i mean and this is stemming from the chip shortage but also uh, uh you know production effects from the pandemic uh, a lot of that is going into why these cars are uh this expensive and um i will say you know it, it doesn't seem like it's slowing down either uh, i am uh, personally i've been in the market for a little bit now for a, a new daily driver and uh and, yeah what a time to be in the market for a new daily driver right well i don't need one 
uh, desperately. Uh, and so that's why I'm taking my sweet time. And for me, a new daily driver is in the form of a, a light duty, smaller pickup truck like a Tacoma with four wheel drive, decent towing capacity, like five, six thousand pounds, not a ton and uh, four wheel drive lockers. Uh, it's not going to be the off roading rig. I have cheap eight hundred dollar Jeep for that. It's just, you know, living in Colorado, uh, four wheel drive. It's a good thing to have lockers. Another good thing to have. And um in a pickup truck, I, I do so much car stuff now, uh, shuffling parts around and flipping parts and buying parts for my project cars that a pickup truck at this point makes a lot more sense than stuffing uh, engine blocks into the back of a two door Jeep. So <laughs> that's just what I've been doing. But that said, you know, my it's it's tough to find these these cars and looking for Tacomas. One thing that makes it harder for me to find one is I got to find one in manual because I'm just that type of person. So that kind of narrows my search. But, you know, I've got a max budget that's really humble, like 20K max. That's like with taxes and everything out the door. I am not looking for a new car. And, uh, and and here's the problem, like that Corvette that is selling for, you know, seventy six thousand dollars in erect condition, salvage condition, um, any all cars, you know, like, say, the Tacomas I'm looking for. But even, you know, colleagues and coworkers and friends who are looking for just simple things like Camrys and, you know, uh, you know simple commuter cars um, are having a harder time finding them at MSRP new or even used. And what's crazy is. Um, you know, you know, for me, I've just been taking my time with this looking for a daily and, uh, you know, just taking my time waiting for one to come across. And what I think we need to do as people who might occasionally buy a car every now and then is not buy cars at all when the prices are like this, because like that's the only way you can combat this. The reason dealers and the reason private party people are asking such nutty uh, amounts for for cars um, is because they know they will get someone who will buy that. That's that's the crazy thing. They know they're going to get someone buying that car for that price. And that's been the issue I've been, I've run into looking for Tacomas because, um, you know, it's like I find a truck that conservatively is maybe worth like 16, 17,000. It's got a few problems, but it's decent, you know, maybe 18,000. And the seller's asking like 25 for it. And uh, there's no haggling them down. There's no haggling them down. Even I've found to 23.5 or anything because they don't care. They're like, oh, who cares? If you don't buy it, I'll get someone else here, you know, in an hour who's going to pay me full price. So that's that's the issue. Sellers are able to ask these high prices because for some godforsaken reason, everyone else has so much money that they're just paying asking price for things now, which is just nuts. That's not how buying used cars should be. Uh, buying new cars shouldn't be that way either. Dealers are asking monstrous markups on even average cars again, like Tacomas, which is ridiculous, you know, and I was looking at, you know, well, all right, well, for that money, can I go lease something? I, I don't really like leasing things, but, you know, what could I get for that money at a dealer? And the problem is, yeah, the dealer maybe has a better deal. If you can get inventory uh, in stock, but the problem is, even if it's a better deal, it doesn't matter if you can't get the car for, you know, a year because they're just they're out of stock and they're so back ordered and there's no allocations for them. So that's what's making that tough. But again, I think as consumers, the way we can combat these ridiculous car prices that are just they, they seem to be getting worse than they were even um, over the pandemic, you know, a year ago when it was really actually starting to get in full swing. And, you know, even in 2020, when it was going berserk, um, it was still easier to get a car then. It seems to be that this is even more difficult now. But again, the solution is do if you have to get a car, do your best to hold out, though, and not succumb to these ridiculous high prices.
prices. That's at least what I have to say. So, hey, anyway, uh, coming up, we got a lot of other interesting things to talk about, namely Chevy's new EV Silverado. Now, that is uh, it's going to be cool. We'll, we'll hit the details here coming up. And now for how things work with an engineer. Rotary engines. Regret. And that was how things work with an engineer. For more of how things work, go to patreon.com slash throttle warrior. Yeah, those car sounds are courtesy of Alan Van. He sent those in to the Automotive ADHD Facebook page. That is his 2008 Volvo C30 that has the T5 five-cylinder white block Volvo engine turbo five-cylinder. How cool is that? I actually, I really enjoy those uh, Volvo uh, engines. I mean, they sound like like Viper V10s almost, but with a turbo, which is which is uh, even cooler. Also, they're very reliable. They make good power. And I think in the car scene, they're underappreciated. Everyone's like, ah, K24 this, you know, LS this. Those Volvo white blocks are plentiful, powerful, reliable. I think they're very, very cool engines. And the C30 is one of the coolest Volvos you could have that engine in, in my opinion, one of the most interesting ones. So, hey, speaking of things that sound like a V10, speaking of Viper V10s, I should say, you know, because, you know, Vipers have V10s. Did you know that Dodge last year, 2021, sold four new Vipers, which is interesting because the Vipers production ended, sadly, I should say, uh, in 2017. So those four new Vipers were still remaining inventory at dealerships brand new imagine that 2021 you're buying a brand new viper and uh you know and sadly again i say they ended production you know which was very disappointing as a car enthusiast um as someone who doesn't own a viper <laughs> unfortunately well I'll, I'll maybe i'll i'll put that one on the list um because i mean there's such cool cars uh you know when what other manufacturer in the modern time you could say had a sports coupe rear wheel drive front engine V10 with a manual transmission. I mean, no one else was doing that. Um, you know, sure, if you want to go to Lamborghini, you're getting a V10, um, but but you're not getting a manual transmission anymore. And it's not a, you know, big, you know, big hood, you know, f- very long front end kind of roadster style. Um, it's not. So, yeah, I think that was the last car of its kind. I hope Dodge um, revives the Viper. I don't think... The odds of that are very good, sadly, but I do hope deep down in my heart that they do. Um, the fact that they had remaining inventory at dealerships does go to show that they were getting pretty poor sales on them still. And that's part of why they discontinued them. And sure, they consume a ton of fuel. They're, you know, expensive, but God, they're cool. They're one of the best sounding cars ever. If you ever want a good, uh, just a good, you know, video to watch to hear that car sound, I believe it was uh, Pennzoil did a promotional video on YouTube with the Viper. A uh, really well done film that really highlighted the sound of the Viper. Just look that one up sometime. Uh, Viper Pennzoil film, and that is worth every second of your time. Um, now, rather concerningly, Dodge also sold, get this, 10 new darts in 2021. 10! They sold 10 of them. And uh, they, sell, they sold more of those than they did new Vipers, which is also disappointing. The um, 
The uh, Dodge Dart was uh, discontinued back in 2016, and there were still new ones floating around on dealer lots. Well, new, never been sold, but now they are a couple years old, and they're just a dreadful little compact car, truly the antithesis of the Viper. They're the polar opposite, uh, and it's staggering to think the same people built both the Dart and the Viper. And uh, yet, yet someone wanted, uh, 10 people in 2021 wanted to buy them. For some reason, uh, which also I find funny about the Dodge Dart, the Dodge Dart, that nameplate goes back to the 1970s, where they also had a Dart, uh, which was kind of a commuter car it was sort of a compact. Right? Yeah, it's compact by like 1970s standards. So, I mean, it's probably, you know, still bigger than even full size cars now. But still, it wasn't renowned. It wasn't renowned for its greatness. It was kind of the opposite, in fact. And I find it amusing that Dodge, when they brought back the Dart, they're like, we're going to bring back the Dart nameplate, this legendary classic nameplate that really didn't have a good connotation. But they're like, yeah, we're going to bring it back and we're going to put it on an even worse car. Oh, my God. Great thinking there. Great thinking on Dodge's behalf. Again, same people who built the Viper. Same people. So uh, I do find that interesting. Now, hey, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's talk about new cars uh, that are also expensive and we won't see because of the chip shortage. But they're cool. They're cool. Uh, Chevy just announced this week. Um, and even though that I'm, I'm not a huge EV fan, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this because this is one of the biggest pieces of news currently in the automotive uh, industry. They announced the Silverado EV, yes, electric vehicle, um, and this is on the heels of Ford announcing their F-150 Lightning earlier this year. Now, Ford beat them to the punch, but in some ways, that allows Chevy to look at the specs Ford has and have a couple more months to develop their vehicle to have just a, a, a few more, because that's basically what it's done. In comparison to the um, F-150 Lightning, which is uh, still not you know, shipping or anything yet. They're still working on those. But um, the uh, F or the the Silverado uh, has some different specs. They're just a little bit higher. Uh, and the, the specs are always crazy, uh, as always with EVs. That's one thing I am noticing very heavily is that EVs uh, spec wise are um, are, are kind of nuts uh, compared to what we're used to with gas cars. So this comes with uh, the Silverado comes with 664 horsepower, a 10,000 pound towing capacity and a 400 mile range. Um, and it's going to have a late 2023 release date. Now, presumably, presumably that'll be just as Tesla announces more delays for the Cybertruck. Come on. When is Tesla going to finish this? I mean, they're a big manufacturer now. They don't have the excuse that Rivian has that ooh, we're, we're the new kids on the block. You know, we're learning this manufacturing process. Now they've been doing it now for a little while. And uh, Ford and Chevy are I, totally beating them to the punch. Um, and amazing that Rivian beat them to the punch. And they're actually the new people on the block. So um, now anyway, some of the estimated pricing for this Silverado, it's not official. This comes from a report from Car and Driver. There's um, uh, six different trim levels. Uh, and so there's the WT, the LT, the LTZ, the Trail Boss, the High Country, uh, and the uh, RST. And uh, so the WT is the base model. They're saying that's going to be about $42,000. That's not a crazy amount for a an electric pickup. That's if it's actually $42,000 and dealer markups don't totally destroy this thing. Um, that's going to be really good. Uh, and then it steps up 50,000, 75,000, 85,000 for the trail boss, high country, 90,000 RST. The RST is their top of the line model, most power, uh, most everything, all the gadgets that you 
probably don't need, but it has everything. $107,000 for a pickup truck. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And that's also a really big price delta between the top trim uh, and the base model. So I have a feeling we'll see a lot more of these base models floating around. They're definitely a lot cheaper. And you can bet if there are dealer markups and insane prices, that $100,000, $107,000 MSRP very quickly will be like 150 or something stupid. So anyway, um, EV trucks are absolutely going to be the next big thing. I mean, EV cars are a big deal now. Um, but when you compare this two to just gas cars, um, gas trucks versus gas cars, uh, versus SUVs even, right? So Kelly Blue Book, uh, reported for 2020, 2.9 million trucks were sold with 2.8 million cars, almost a 50, 50 split. But if you factor in the 5.9 million SUVs and crossovers that were sold, that means there's roughly 9 million trucks and SUVs to 3 million cars. Cars are absolutely the minority here now. And, um, and so that's basically a, a three to one ratio. And, uh, you know, and Chevy has some really good competition, uh, you know, with the F-150 Lightning. Rivian also uh, is there with the R1T, which I talked about last week, went into some great detail about the build quality uh, and the, the, at least the initial build quality um, as customers start to receive those cars. You can go listen to that episode from uh, last week. Um, but yeah, I think, and that's also why I think Rivian's SUV version of their R1T truck will be so big because again, look at those SUV numbers, 5.9 million compared to 2.9 million trucks and 2.8 million cars. Uh, yeah, SUVs are insane, but trucks are, are definitely, uh, still outselling cars. And that's why I think this EV truck game is going to be massive. It's going to be bigger than, you know, high performance luxury sedans, like what Tesla currently sells. And I mean, Tesla knows this, obviously that's why they're making the cyber truck. If they're actually making it, you know, <laughs> just saying we haven't heard anything about that. Um, now, I will say aesthetically, the Rivian does look better to me. It also has 200 horsepower more than the Chevy. It's got 800 horsepower, uh, has a slightly higher towing capacity. Problem is reliability is in question. New manufacturer, completely new stuff. We don't know what's going to happen. It'll probably be OK. I think Rivian looked at some of Tesla's early production and uh, and learned from that and, uh, you know, uh, try is trying not to repeat some of those same mistakes. But even then, um, they're still a new manufacturer. They're untested. We don't know what their dealer support network is going to be like. Uh, GM and Ford have nearly a century of manufacturing experience. They're really good at it. They're also really good at selling cars, huge network of dealerships and service centers. So, um, you know, yeah, I think they're going to have the edge, even though I think the Rivian looks cooler. It has the better specs. More people are probably going to buy the GMs and the Fords because uh, in addition to that, just the production numbers as a new manufacturer, Rivian is not going to be able to produce as many vehicles as General Motors is. Now, it's also worth noting that General Motors is producing this new Silverado, which some of the looks of it are a little odd. You have this weird sloped back to the cab. It looks a lot like the Chevy Avalanche from uh, the early 2000s. It looks a lot like that. So much like that. Then when some when some uh, pictures of it leaked a little early, people are like, no, they're making the new Avalanche now. Well, it's still called the Silverado, but it might as well be the new Avalanche. Um, it's got that kind of sloped back. I don't really like how that looks. But what also has that sloped back is the new Hummer EV, which is technically, I guess, a GMC product. I mean, it's all General Motors. And uh, turns out that Hummer EV and the Silverado EV share basically the same platform. So they're sharing the same drivetrain components, the same frame, the same basic 
bones of the vehicle are shared between them. Uh, and that also means that the Silverado gets the Hummer's cool four wheel steering, um, which I think that's going to be a big revolution for pickup truck driving. And that's going to sway a lot of people who are probably going to buy a smaller SUV or maybe a car who might occasionally need to like move something on the weekend. They're going to buy a pickup truck now because that four wheel steering is going to make that thing so nice to drive in the city compared to how we know trucks to be right now. So, yeah, I think you know what, regardless for the price, I will stick to hunting for 10 year old Tacomas <laughs> for the price for the price right now. Um, hey, anyway, uh, last week I did talk about winter driving and almost ironically, after that, a massive snowstorm hit Virginia, causing thousands of unprepared motorists to get stuck in the snow. I don't know. Perhaps they should have listened uh, to my podcast last week about snow tires. But hey, I'm going to have a special guest as well joining me over the phone to talk about that. Did you know there's a rare but serious condition affecting one out of every million? Most are born with it, and despite decades of research, doctors struggle to find a cure. The truth is, thousands of people simply don't know what cars are. For those affected, things are grim, but recent developments show promising success. New clinical trials using breakthrough audio technology have shown a 69% improvement in patients with the most severe symptoms. Treatments vary, but one day we may see a cure. More information is available at ThrottleWarrior.com. Here we are rocking it for the last segment of the show. I say the last, but I have so many great things packed into this part of the show. Um, by the way, those car sounds are courtesy again of New Long Lore. Uh, once again, doing some great skids in his Honda S2000. Good stuff. You can send your car sounds into the Automotive ADHD Facebook page, facebook.com slash automotive ADHD. While you're there, go ahead and like the page. We're really starting to ramp things up. Going to have some good stuff going on there. Uh, and before I get on to other things, too. Cool thing, Spotify. If you listen on Spotify, and I know looking at my analytics, a lot of people do. About 50% of people are listening right now on Spotify. They just added a new feature that allows you to rate podcasts. Yes, this is cool. It's so new. You might even have to update your Spotify uh, if you don't see it there uh, right now. And uh, you can give a podcast a star rating. And if you would be so gracious as to give this podcast a six star rating, well, <laughs> I'm kidding. It only goes up to five, but um, that is uh, that would be absolutely helpful and a great way to support the show. Um, uh, Spotify will use those rating numbers um, to promote shows and uh, decide how many people it wants to you know, start showing uh, the podcast and recommendations. So if you would be so kind as to give it a rating, I would be eternally grateful. Uh, and also remember to send your car sounds into the show if you want to have those featured on the show. So uh, let's talk about that winter storm that hit Virginia. This was last Tuesday, uh, and I'm going to have a guest joining me over the phone in just a minute to talk a little bit about this. But this came with almost fortuitous timing uh, just after I did a podcast talking about winter tires and a little bit about winter preparedness. You know, here in Colorado, we're used to the snow. But, you know, I, I realized, too, a lot of the country is not used to snow and is very underprepared driving wise when things come to that. Look at Texas uh, last year when those big snowstorms hit 
and caused all the pipes to freeze and everyone had a really bad time about it. And there's some really minor stuff you can do to prepare for the snow, even if you live in a state where you really don't get snow. Um, I mean, easy stuff you can just throw in the trunk of your car and you're good to go. So um, uh, just a bit of a recap, though, on that I-95, Interstate 95 incident. Uh, they dropped about a, about a foot of snow dropped onto that area in Virginia, which doesn't normally get a lot of snow. Uh, and that caused slick conditions. Officials said that the snow had initially started out as rain and that officials had sent trucks out to spray de-icing agent preemptively on the roads. Well, the problem is the rain that came before the snow washed a lot of that de-icing material off of the roads. And then the rain froze on the roads and then the snow piled on top of the frozen, you know, well, ice now. Uh, and that caused some majorly slick conditions that led to several semi trucks sliding out of control, crashing and blocking traffic. And it blocked traffic so severely that some people were stuck in their cars reportedly up to 24 hours, a whole full day stuck in their cars and you know and this is you know okay like the perspective from you know people who live in states with more snow are like oh my god these people in warm states don't know what they're doing they they got stuck because they suck at driving that's not true because if you actually look at this incident that happened this was a major freeway the snow itself wasn't that bad it was the slick conditions but it was the fact that no one could get off of the highway. This is a major interstate with uh, concrete barriers on either side of it, tall concrete barriers and uh, not many exits uh, to get off on. So when traffic gets stuck and there's not much of a shoulder either, it's not like you can just say, ah, screw it. I'm going to go around them and plow through the snow. Um, you're truly stuck between concrete, you know, like eight foot concrete barriers on either side and wall to wall cars. doesn't matter how prepared your vehicle is, how good of a driver you are in the snow. Um, that's a situation where you're still going to be stuck because of all the, you know, just the sheer number of people there. So then the, the the thing comes to, you know, well, what can you do to prepare for that? Right. And it, it's some easy stuff. There are some easy things, you know, growing up here in the mountains, something my parents always instilled in me is always having um, stuff in your car that can help you if you get stuck. Um, or if you have to spend a night in your car. So things simple as just having some water bottles that you don't touch aside from, you know, an emergency, you know, change them out every couple months, having some blankets, some spare gloves, just at the minimum, have that in a bag in your trunk. You can forget about it. Leave it there. Don't even need to worry about it. Doesn't take up any space, you know, just have that stuff. So, you know, if you can't prevent getting stuck and you genuinely get into a bad situation, you can at least wait out a night in your car uh, until help comes. So that's uh, that's important. Also, tires are super important. Uh, don't travel in the snow. If your tires suck, that's a very big rule that often gets uh, overlooked. I mean, here in Colorado, I see people on bald tires trying their best to drive through the snow and they're wondering why their all wheel drive vehicle isn't doing anything for them. It's because their tires suck another good tip is uh, to keep your tank fuller in the winter because you never know if you're going to have to idle for a long time uh, i'm guilty of this i tend to be the kind of guy especially in the summertime i get complacent i drive that car until that fuel needle is on empty and the light has been on for like 30 miles already and then i get gas so um no that's that's one thing in the winter you really can't you can't afford to do that so but it got me wondering though speaking of needing to idle for a long period of time a lot of people in this incident on i-95 said they turned their cars off to conserve fuel and i think that's a poor decision because that comes at the cost of losing heat um 
when it becomes a survival situation uh, and you're waiting for help, you're, you, know, you know you're stuck. There's not much of a chance you're getting unstuck. At this point, you're waiting for emergency crews to come and help. The goal is to survive. Don't worry about the fuel. You're not going anywhere anyway. So you want to you know, burn all that fuel to stay warm in the car as long as possible. Eventually, it will run out. But the thing is, warm usually means not dead when it comes to winter driving and just being a, a survival situation uh, in the winter. So, yeah, you know, you're, you're not going anywhere anyway. Just burn the fuel. Keep warm as long as possible. But that got me to this question. How much fuel does your car really burn? And to answer that question is someone drastically more qualified than me. He's a certified mechanic with nearly a decade of experience working on Volvos professionally. He's a friend of the show. Some even call him OBD1 Kenobi, but his name is Brian Conrad. Thanks for joining me. Ah, hey, man. Yes, yes. I'm happy to, to have you on the show. So, so uh, you know, let's talk about fuel usage, um, specifically at idle, because what I was getting into earlier in the show was, you know, about the, the big traffic jam on I-95 in Virginia, where they had people stuck for 24 hours. And the problem is people were, you know, saying they're turning their cars off to save fuel at the cost of losing heat. And in that kind of scenario, you're primary goal is the heat you're not going anywhere yeah so the fuel doesn't matter to drives but but how much realistically can you expect the car to idle how long um with just that amount of fuel i was you know funny enough i was trying to do the math before you know he called me in and uh just going off some numbers here because uh new cars you know they have the mass airflow sensor it can actually tell you a uh specific amount of grams or kilograms per second or an hour most of the time when I'm like doing a smoke test or I'm testing for an inlet leak on a car right. that I work on, it reads approximately like three and a half to four grams of air or sorry, three and a half grams of air per second off the mass airflow sensor. Okay. So I just converted that to kilograms an hour. And then I took that number and I, I can't remember if I divided or multiplied by the stoichiometric ratio of gasoline. Okay. And that gave me approximately um, how many kilograms of gas I would need for that much air per an hour. And then I just converted that to pounds. And that turned out to be uh, like two, two something pounds. And then I guess one, one gallon of fuel is approximately six gallons. So that's about a third of a gallon of fuel. Or six pounds of fuel, right? Yeah. Six pounds. Okay. So that breaks down then ultimately to half half a gallon an hour, essentially. I would say that would be better assumption, yeah, because, I mean, that probably doesn't take into consideration, like, uh, accessories or running the heater constantly. I'm sure the heater being on takes away uh, from the engine running because obviously it's well, taking just, heat away. When you have also the just the electrical load running the heater and that absolutely the electrical load to the alternator at that point so yeah uh, but roughly then it would be a safe approximation it was about half half a gallon an hour yeah that's that's my uh ghetto math right there there we go okay <laughs> I'll, I'll take that i'll take that so then in that case let's say for an average fuel tank what do you think that's about 18 gallons uh, i'd say 15 gallons 15 gallons okay Passenger so cars. we'd do that times what 0. 0.5 then times two times two there we go. I'm showing yeah. my math skills here. And this you is get why, like 30 hours out of that. This is this is why I called in a professional here. So, uh, so okay. So we've got we've got that math there. So 30 hours realistically on a full tank of fuel. So now I, I realize that not everyone um, 
would be driving with a full tank of fuel. That's that's like best case scenario. That's you you just yeah. filled up and yeah. then you got stuck. Um, but still, thirty hours, and most of these folks were stuck uh, at most for about twenty four hours. So again, the notion, even if you had, um, even if you had half a tank of fuel, and that gives you fifteen hours of effective heat time uh, from the car. That's most of, you know, a lot of people were there from anywhere between 19 to 24 hours. That's most of your time there. And if you're really running that primarily at night when that's cold, um, and if it's really cold, I think that would still get you through the scenario, right? That would still get you heat basically until everyone got rescued. You just got to assume how confident, how much fuel they had beforehand. That's true. And that, that kind of brings me into the point I made earlier in the show, which was, um, that, you know, driving with about half a tank, at least in the winter, you know, not letting your tank get beneath half a tank, which I'm really guilty of, like, driving until it's pegged out on empty and the fuel light has already been on for 30 miles. But, you know, not doing that in the winter seems to be a prudent thing. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll honestly say I'm not usually prepared that way either. <laughs> yeah, I will say when I take a trip into the mountains, uh, I do that. I do like if I'm if I'm going jeeping, if I'm going off roading, I really make sure I have a lot of fuel and I don't run it low. But doing that on even more of a daily basis is important. Now, Brian Conrad, again, is my guest. So, Brian, uh, what do you think then um, about other mechanical things that can be done to prepare for winter driving? I mean, I can't stress it enough, but tires, tires and tires. <laughs> I did a whole show last week about tires. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I heard. But <laughs> tires, man, tires got to be the most important thing if mm. you don't have the right tires it doesn't matter if you're all-wheel drive or a jeep or i don't know what you are but you're, you're probably not going to make it if you're on bald tires hands down right and that's like last week i was i was joking about how i put you know snow tires on my s2000 and i was passing people who were stuck in you know all-wheel drive suvs and i i've shoveled out of snow in the saturn with with just snow tires in the front clapped out taller than the car Saturn front wheel drive. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, and that's the thing, like tires are important now. So what mechanically, is there anything else, um, that should be done in preparation that you should maybe at least do going into winter once, you know, take it to a shop and have something done. Uh, Oh man, off the top of my head, I can't really think, but I know that, um, there are things I'll, I'll do like the morning of, but, or, I mean, first of all, I try to make sure I have one vehicle that is, like, snow-ready. Got tires. I know it's reliable. It's not going to break on me. That's got good heat. Heat is a big thing. You don't want to be uncomfortable. Yeah, and especially yeah. in um, uh, your car, a Volvo XC90 with the V8. That's a that's a great winter car. All-wheel all drive, V8, <laughs> heated seats, leather heated seats. Oh, my God. That's a oh, fun yeah. car. I wish my Jeep was half as comfortable as that. So, <laughs> so yeah. Well, anyway, so those are some some good, I guess, winter driving tips. The 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 thought being again with fuel that you could last about on an ideal scenario about thirty hours if you had a full tank of fuel and you were truly stuck. If there was no hope of getting out, and your goal is to survive until help gets there, thirty hours. You know, a good measurement would be like. A two liter versus maybe some sort of V8 and see what their idle fuel consumption would be. Right. Because I guess we didn't really address to the differences in generally, you know, how big uh, the d displacement of an engine and how much fuel it consumes idling, which is sort of a generalization here. But um, that would be interesting to compare to, you know, and actually get some real numbers 
on a small two liter versus a big V8. You know, I assume obviously the V8 is going to take more just because there's more mass to move. But at the end of the day, just idling still doesn't take a lot of power, whether or not you've got a V8 or, uh, uh, you know, a, a four cylinder. Yeah, true. So. Hopefully, though, you're not just, you know, sitting around in the snow waiting for it to go away. You can actually drive. Right, right. And this is this is a hypothetical worst case scenario, like what happened on um, I-95 in Virginia. There was there was no way to get around that. So but that's good stuff. Well, hey, I want to thank you, Brian, for joining me on the show. Let's have you back maybe for some more mechanic myths in the future. Ah, uh, Yes. Yes. Good stuff. <laughs> All right. So, hey, again, want to thank Brian for joining me on the show. And of course, if you want to catch more of Brian, you got to listen to him debunking mechanic myths on this show. You got to go way back in your podcast feed, but go back to episode three. It is definitely worth your time. Also want to thank you for joining me on this edition of the show. Uh, and of course, if you are a Spotify listener, feel free to give this a rating. Also send in your car sounds, uh, Facebook.com slash automotive ADHD. Now you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify and wherever other podcasts are downloaded. And I will see you next time, same time, same place, when I team up with Mel Gibson to become the Road Warrior. See you then. <laughs>